Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. So the next part of the journey is the river. Yeah, so we finally made it to the river. Uh, we filled up after uh, getting whatever information we could in the area, which was very little. They just said they don't, knew nothing about the Heath River on the other side of the mountains. They didn't know much about the Tambopata, the river we were going down. But I was lucky that the river guide that we brought had made one of the first descents of this river, of the Tambopata River. So he knew the river. So we knew we'd be okay. So we loaded up our rafts and uh, headed out. For the next week, we were in uh, some heavy, some of it was heavy white water. And uh, until we got down to where I assumed where our crossing point was going to be. Now you had maps, but were they accurate? Yeah, we had a map. We, well, we had Fawcett's map, you know, from 86 years ago, uh, hand-drawn. But that was the, the Heath River. You know, what technology did they, did they have then? You know, they didn't have any. I did have a GPS. It was one of the very early, early GPSs. This was in 1996 didn't work very well, but it did work from time to time in a cleared area. didn't work under the canopy. And then I had procured some military maps. I was really lucky to, we knew a guy, one of the guys on the expedition was, he was a, a Reuters cameraman. And he personally knew Fujimori, the then president of uh, Peru. And we were able to get these maps from the military. Well, they were from the 1950s, right? So how accurate are those? But they were better than nothing. They're really good, actually. And I was able to plot uh, where we thought our crossing point, which was a small river that I knew that if we followed this small stream that came from the general direction we were going, that it would go part of the way up the mountains in the way the general direction we needed to go. Uh, So that was your landmark of... Or to take out from that river and and make the crossing. Right. The Marte River or Quebrada Marte, Marte Stream. We got to that place. We had a few problems, actually. Um, I don't know how interesting this is, but uh, there was some, uh, a little bit of leadership program uh, problems. The the guy on the river, he was a good friend of mine that I had uh, used to outfit a lot of my expeditions in in Peru, my adventure travel trips, and he knew a lot. He was the guy that made one of the first expedition uh, uh, descents of this river, well known in the area. So I put him in charge on the river. You know, I, I don't, I don't care who's in charge. You know, you just do the best thing for the expedition. You know, it doesn't matter who the final word is, and uh, the one that you want to have the final word is the one that has the most experience, in my opinion. So I put him in charge when we're on the river. And that was fine. We got down to that point. But then when we uh, left the river, uh, we started having some little clashing of heads. I think he still wanted to, to be in charge a little bit. 
you know. And that, anyway, that's here nor there, except that became a huge problem later in the expedition. Uh, the problem was that uh, he was in charge of the food and uh, the equipment. He was kind of like the quartermaster. And uh, so later on, we had a problem because we became we we were short of food. There's not an easy way to describe the why how that happened, but um, one was he had to be rescued off of an expedition just before our expedition. Uh, he was doing a, a rafting, a guiding rafting trip of the Aparimac, which the Speaker of the Gods, one of the the big time rafting uh, trips uh, on the Upper Amazon. It's a six class river, very serious. Many people have died on it, but he was doing a doing a trip there, and it turned out that he was to do that a week before our trip, and but the week before we came we had planned that he was to do nothing except prepare for our expedition, get the food that we needed. He was going to bring all the food. I was going to bring a hundred uh, freeze-dried packets for at the end of our trip. But for the, the staple of our, our group, he was going to bring uh, normal food, arrange for the, the scientists that were going to come. They were Peruvian. And I was going to bring the rafts and the kayaks and a lot of the other equipment, but uh, most of it he was going to arrange, the transportation and all of that. And he was well known. He had done this for me for many years. Well, uh, it turned out that he tried to squeeze in another trip, another uh, guided trip on the Aparimac. So uh, I'm calling him a week before our expedition, and I can't find him. I'm calling his office. They don't know where he is. And it turns out they're worried because he went on this trip. He should have been back. He never arrived. Now, there's no communication. There was no cell phones then or anything like that. Uh, now I'm getting worried because all of the week preparation that hasn't been done, it's getting closer. The days are going by. Finally, it's uh, one or two days before I'm to arrive. And still no word from him. So I call my my friend, another uh guy on the expedition who is the Reuters cameraman uh, who knew Fujimori, the president then. And he started, he has a, his wife was a, his wife worked in the a Spanish speaking news program, television program. So it turned out they actually called Fujimori to see if there's any way that he could find information or send some kind of help or a helicopter to find out why this had happened. And at that time, there's no rescue during expeditions anywhere in Peru or anything. You know, it's still a poor country, and uh, everything's on your own there. And so it, then they got no, he got no word from Fujimori, even though he was on a first-name basis with him. So uh, in other words, no, we're not going to do anything. Why should we? Turns out then he turned it over to his wife that was a... Uh, a newscaster for a Spanish-speaking uh, news program, and they started running programs on television that Peruvian nationals are dead and dying on the upper Rimac, and the government won't do anything about it. People are bloody. They're dying there, you know. So uh, later that day, he gets a call from Fujimori saying, okay, stop the news programs. I'll send the helicopters. He sent the helicopters. They got to the upper Rimac. They found our, my friend there with his group. Everybody was fine. The only problem was 
there were heavy rains in the uh, upper Amazon and or in the mountains there. And uh, when rains come, sometimes uh, rivers become unraftable. And in fact, in the lower Amazon, overnight, the lower Amazon can raise 40 feet vertical after a heavy rain. It's incredible. So if they were to continue rafting, they would have all died. You know, there was no way to raft this safely. So all they could do was wait for the river to drop. But nobody was hurt. There was no blood. Everybody was okay. So uh, the military left. And by the way, we were using this connection that my friend had with Fujimori in case there was some kind of accident we had on our expedition. That was going to be our out, you know, our one out. And what does he say now? Don't ever call us again. I will, we will never do anything like this. You know, you've wasted all of this. And in fact, uh, the uh, river guide was charged, I think a couple thousand dollars to cover some of the costs. Anyway, we finally get there. Sorry about that long story, but we finally get to uh, Peru and nothing's been done. My friend gets there, I think the same day that we got there. And we quickly start arranging things. Now, uh, as I said, we turned out later. It turns out that we were short of food on the expedition, and maybe this was a contributing factor. I don't know. There were a lot of other reasons that I won't go into, but um, we ended up getting short of food. Now I forgot where we were in the story. Well, th- this is kind of important because it put you and the rest of the folks on that expedition in, in real peril. If I understand, I mean, you were not just short of food, you were short of food by weeks. And if I remember correctly, he had actually arranged for the rescue boat to come early, which actually also burned that out for you, if I, if I recall right. Yeah, that's right. So we had planned, we planned it to be like six weeks for the expedition. And then we knew that when we were descending the heath, that there was no idea how long that would take. Nobody had ever done it before. And so to, to kind of help us, because we knew we'd be short of food at that point, but we figured we had planned it okay, so we, would, we knew how far we could go. And uh, I had arranged to have a, a Pecky Pecky, which is one of their uh, shallow craft, shallow water crafts that they have that can go up low water. I had arranged for somebody to come upriver as far as they could go on a particular day and then to wait there for a week until we came down. And that would keep us from going the last however many kilometers it took to get out. It turns out that he never did that. He never arranged for that boat. At first I thought because our timing changed that he had arranged it, but the boat wouldn't be there. But it turned out he never even arranged that when it was all said and done. So now we're out of food and we don't know, and we now know that there's not going to be this rescue in a, in a sense, craft come up river. So that could be another, that could be weeks that we're going to, more that we're going to be out of food. So it's just this crazy uh, conjunction of horrible things that turned out to be a lot more dangerous than we thought. Now, there must have been some colorful talk around the campfire that night when you all discovered that. Yeah, well, okay, I'll tell you what, we get to this point. We get to the point where now uh, we're at the crossing point. We're at the place where I know now is 
this stream that we're going to go up to get to go over the mountains. We don't know what that's going to be like. There's no records of anybody doing it. Fawcett supposedly did it, but he had natives show him a way over it. And actually, at this, the mouth of this river, this, this stream, Quebrada Marte, coming in to the Tambopada, there used to be a rubber camp here. Uh, in the old days, rubber was very valuable. They used it for a lot of things that we use, make synthetic things out of now. But um, there was a rubber boom going on and uh, rubber trees. The sap from rubber was very, very valuable. And there was a rubber camp here where they had some military guys that were running this camp that would set out rubber uh, people to, to bring the sap from rubber camps. But it was kind of at the dying days of the rubber boom. And this camp was dying, in fact. When Fawcett got there, they were starving. And so as a result, we thought at least we could find something there to indicate where we were. But there was not one shred of evidence. It was amazing how the the jungle had taken back everything that was there. There was not a brick. There was not a piece of wood. There was nothing to indicate that there was ever a structure or a compound there. It was remarkable. But anyway... Uh, at any rate, we got to that point, and then uh, we had a few minor problems. Uh, when we started going upriver, we were going. We had massive loads. <clears throat> there were nine of us now. We had a radio, a shortwave radio that we were using that we could communicate if we had an emergency. We were going to use that for our one out with the military if we had an emergency. Now that's worthless, but we still brought that to communicate with the outside world. We had to erect a a 30-foot antenna in the forest to do it. But we had that. We had batteries. We had a couple of video cameras. We had batteries for that. We had a generator for the... uh, We had a generator for the antenna for the uh, shortwave radio. We had our food and equipment. We had our wraps that we were carrying. So we had so much equipment, we had to make two carries. We would carry one carry in of all of the equipment that we could carry. Uh, we'd take a day's journey up river and we would put it somewhere above the river, cache it. Then we would come back and camp that night. And then the next night we would carry our, our tents and camping equipment, whatever else, and we'd move up to that next spot. Uh, it's normal to do this sometimes in expeditions. So anyway, but it was grueling, right? So we made uh, one carry. The first carry we made up there, we stashed our gear and brought our, our camp back down to the river. And then the following day, brought our, next, brought our next load up and made our camp. And you always make your camp in the rainforest above the water. You never do it close to the, within a few feet of the water level because you can always have rains during the night that increase the water, increase the water level. And so we generally were about 10 to 12 feet above the river. And it was a good reason, good above the stream. At this location of our first camp, the stream was only a brook. It was only maybe three feet wide, four feet wide, a small stream, maybe five feet wide. Uh, so we would, we would climb out of the riverbank and then slash and, uh, and clear an area where we could put our tents. And kind of an interesting. Um, thing to know if you're ever in the situation you have to cut everything you have to cut down to bare dirt 
if there's any leaves that have come down, if you cut any trees and there's parts of the trees there, you will be inundated with ants. With ants, they smell, and insects, they, they smell the cut, the cut foliage and they go there to collect it. And so you will literally be covered with thousands and thousands of ants. So you have to clear it down to, to dirt, you know. So that night uh, we're sleeping and started to rain as it usually did. In fact, on this expedition, it rained every, every, most of the days and every night. So for some reason, I woke up about one in the morning. And although I didn't have to pee, which usually I do at night, I, I just had this weird sense I have to get up and go check our gear down by the river because they left some of our gear and clothes out. There was a little peak of sunshine where we were. So some of the guys left, uh, washed their clothes and put them out on some rocks. And we left uh, one of the bags. I didn't know which one it was on a stone that was about six feet above the, the uh, stream. So I, I had this nagging thought. I don't know what it was, but, I finally couldn't sleep anymore. So I got up and I walked down with my headlamp and, and thank God I did because there is, it turned out to be later was one of our main food bags on top of a, a stone, a, a big uh, ledge of rock that was six feet above the river, just starting to float, to float away. And I grabbed that. Of course, all the clothing was gone. Everything else, some sneakers were gone that people left down there. And I pulled that up. But uh, the next two days, that river rose up well above that, rose up to about eight or 10 feet above the, the water level before, below, and it was in rapid, and we couldn't move for a day or two. Some of the people were trapped down in the river below. Little things like that were happening all the time. You have to just be prepared for them. And the intuition or, or something you heard or didn't hear? Who knows? But, uh, you know, when you have those nagging thoughts respond to them, I, I say. Definitely. At this point in time, you still need to make the crossing over the ridge to get to the heath. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Well, we're, we're kind of in the process of the initial start, leaving the Tumbapata River. We're going up this Marte River, this Quebrada Marte, that I knew was going in the general direction that we needed to go. But I knew at some point it's going to turn or peter out and die. So the problem you have with these things, if you're using a, a compass, we couldn't use a GPS because it was the very, very early stages of GPSs. It was not reliable. It didn't work under the canopy at all. But when I got clearings, I could use it a little bit. So we're using a compass. And the problem using compasses on some of these Amazonian rivers, these rainforest rivers, is that many times you can go in the direction of every direction point on the compass. They go in complete circles. In fact, they circle back towards themselves, sometimes going the opposite way for a little while. Especially on a small stream and a mountainous stream like we are here, uh, you have to kind of sometimes guess which way the, the general direction is going. Because the, uh, when you're under the thick canopy, sometimes you can't see the sun. You don't know which way is up or down. You know, you don't know which way is east or west. You might see a little shaft of light over here and say, oh, well, that's light. So uh, it's the afternoon or evening. So that must be the west, right? But no, it's just a shaft of light, you know, and, and uh, it's very, very difficult in thick canopy to know which way to go. 
you're about to cross over the main ridge to get to the heath. And I know you're downplaying it a little bit, but I'm a map and compass guy myself. That navigation and that uh, pathfinding has to be extraordinarily difficult. I mean, you're in a you're in the jungle setting where you can't see more than a few feet. Normally, when you're out navigating, you have at least some vision and you can see ridges or maybe peaks to, to help guide you. But in that situation, all you see is a wall of green. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. Well, how'd you, you do it? If we were outside, well, for instance, later when I left the river, uh, the stream, it's much easier, you know. I just point in one direction and, uh, you know, even though at the most you're seeing 20 feet visually in one direction, uh, you can go 20 feet, 20 feet, 20 feet, you know, or you get a general idea, you know. But uh, once you're confined in a canyon, you can only go which way the canyon goes. And so you're having to estimate, well, gosh, you can't really estimate, well, I walked 30 steps this way, then 30 this way. Now I'm going back 30 steps the other way, you know, or, or 200 steps, whatever it is. You do have to estimate. And for us, that was critical because I knew, at least from the map, it appeared, that it was, there was very little information about this small stream that we were on. But it, it appeared that it was going to move off into one direction for quite a while and go, go parallel to the direction we wanted to go. Going in these loops, how am I going to know which way it was primarily going that that direction, that parallel to to the our intended direction? So that was kind of tough. But um, I'll tell you one thing that was kind of interesting. At this point, the team is doing well. You know, we're in we're in. It's only a week and a half. Well, two or three weeks. Two two weeks since it started, but we've only been in on the river for maybe a week and a half, and everybody's still in good spirits. We had a, a tough day during the rains because a lot of people lost their clothes and <laughs> by stupidly leaving it by the river, by the stream. But everybody's doing pretty well. And then it turns out uh, one of the guys speared a stingray uh, on this small stream. Even though it's a small stream, we speared a pretty big stingray freshwater stingray. It was about maybe two feet in uh, diameter. So it was big, you know, although they get gigantic, enormous in the, in the lower Amazon and the big rivers. I noticed later on in the expedition, the native guys, we did had to do all of, a lot of our exploration walking in the river. And in fact, all the way going up this stream, we walked in the stream because it was so much quicker than going through the impossibly thick bush on the sides of the stream where you'd have to hack. In some places, when I left the river, I hacked uh, with a machete. It took us an hour to go 150 feet. It was just incredible. But, you know, you can walk in the stream easily. But I noticed the native guys, they would, at all costs, they would try to avoid walking in the stream. They'd be you know, going from uh, using their arms to kind of swing from tree to tree on the side of the bank and only going in the river when they needed to. Found out later, they were telling me that these, uh, the venom, these uh, freshwater stingrays, the spines, the stingers, the, the barbs on their tail are incredibly venomous. They're like 10 times more venomous than, than uh, 
saltwater stingrays. And the barbs are gigantic. You know, they're like six or seven inches long, barbed, spiked, you know, arrowhead that goes into your flesh. And once they do, the venom is so strong that uh, the guys were telling me that it'll put you down for two or three days, just the venom. And that's not talking about the wound that it makes, that it makes, you know. So this is the thing that they feared the most. They don't fear piranha. They don't fear anacondas in the water. They don't fear electric eels, which they're all there, right? Uh, these are the ones, which was an eye-opener to me because I, I hadn't come across this so much before in the Amazon. But anyway, we, are, uh, uh, we were able to spear one. And the other thing I learned about them is how delicious they are. We cooked that thing, and it was the beautiful, tender, firm flesh of this animal was just amazing. So if you get a chance, have one sometime. Freshwater stingray. There you go. Now, where did you, or how did you find that jump off point for the crossing right. of that ridge? So we are, uh, we're continuing up this small stream. And I know at some point that we're going, that it's going to turn off and we have to leave the stream. And it's, uh, it, it's quite impactful that moment because it could be miles going in the wrong way. So um, I'm, st- I'm leaving at this point because I have a good, knowledge of compass and route finding. I knew what I was looking for. I knew the maps that I brought. But I was getting this strange feeling that, I don't know why, but whenever I would talk to the fellow that we put in charge of the food, and he was an, uh, an expert river man. He was the guy I was talking about before. Well, he wanted to do all the cooking as well, which that was okay with me, but he was very uh, insistent that he did all the cooking. You know, one of the guys, well, hey, can I help you? No, no, I'm going to do this. And he was a great cook for that, you know, for an expedition. But maybe it was something like that that I was getting the idea. And every once in a while, I would ask him, you know, what's, uh, what's the situation on our, on our uh, goods, on our foods? You know, how are we doing on it? Are we getting short of things that we have to cut back a little bit? Oh, no, 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 it's good. It's good, you know. And, he, and uh, I'd ask him again. And he'd say, no, no, everything's good. He says, Bruce, you know. This is what I do for a living. You know, don't worry, I, I do this. I don't know why. If it's, you know, there's that old Shakespeare saying, uh, methinks he protesteth too much, you know? I don't know if it was that or, or that he wouldn't let anybody help him, but I started having this, this bad feeling. And so, um, you know, you don't want to, I, I, it wasn't appropriate to confront him, you know, right then. There was some bad, ill feelings going on for some reason. He still, I think, felt like the expedition was being pulled away from him. Whenever was his expedition, you know, but uh, he had a lot of friends there, a lot of Peruvian people that looked up to him, actually. So I, I, I put him in charge of doing the route finding the next day. I said, here, you know, do you have a compass? He had one, but it didn't work. And I said, well, I, I taught him how to use a compass. I mean, he knew about it, but didn't know as much as he should have. But uh, I said, uh, and, and I showed him what maps we had. And uh, th- these, as I said, were, were aerial military maps. Nobody had ever been in the area. And they were just from the air from the 1950s, from a military plane and from high altitude. They didn't even show the river we were in now anyway. But I said, head out. And if you can sense that the river is going in this other direction, that's where you want to stop 
leave the river, use the compass and, and go that direction for a while. So I sent him out. And then as soon as he, uh, he left, I went and did an inventory of the food. And it was shocking. I mean, we should have had two or three weeks worth of food there with that stuff. And we had a couple of days, two or three days. Uh, it turned out later, I found out from somebody else that he said he didn't think the expedition would go that long. He thought because it was getting it was getting tough, people were getting scared, and he knew this from the beginning somehow. But uh, we knew now that there was a, you know, this is serious. You know, the expedition could end right now. And it was just about that point. It was actually the day before that we had found a human footprint. And... Everybody knew the situation that we could come in contact with hostile Native people. That was the history of this area in the past, but we didn't know, you know, and I did bring uh, two firearms. I brought a shotgun, which was really tough because there was an air, there was a, uh, there was problems with guerrilla, like um, Marxist, uh, Marxist guerrillas in the area, Sendero and Luminosa, the Shining Path were causing problems in the area. And so it was not outlawed to have a gun, or at least a, you couldn't buy guns. But we got a special permit to get this one shotgun that I brought for food in case we ran into trouble. But I said, under no, under no circumstances were we going to use it to shoot people in order to protect ourselves, unless it was absolutely necessary. You know, I mean, wait until you shot at it a few times and then maybe point it in the air. I didn't think that that would come to pass, but I was prepared for it. And that's why I brought the native guy from the only village we knew about, because the native people, the Esieha, their language is unrelated to, it's unique and unrelated to any others. And we knew that there could probably be if some kind of uh, communication that could be done with, uh, with him as an interpreter. So anyway, uh, now we find out they're short of food. We are short of food. We found that footprint, and now people are pretty terrified. Some guys are, that night were saying, I don't know, should we go on? We found a footprint now. That means there's natives in the area. That means we could be in trouble. They could attack us. So um, I, have a, I hold a meeting now with everybody that's here, except for the guy that I sent off that wasn't telling us about the food. They're extremely angry. They're pissed off at this other guy. They're uh, saying this is the end of the expedition. We can't go on, you know, and, and they want to string this guy up, even though before this he was their hero because he was kind of a famous guy in Peru. So uh, I have a meeting with him, and I say, look, we, it doesn't matter what happened or why it happened. We have to just go on with whatever we do right now. Uh, we're going to continue the expedition, but everybody can't go. So I'm going to have a meeting when he comes back with everyone, and then we'll, uh, we'll decide what's going on. He comes back that night. We have a, I have a meeting. I assemble everybody. It got pretty heated. In fact, the guy that funded the program, he was the American guy. He and this uh, other guy uh, almost got in the blows, and uh, I had to settle them down, separate them. Uh, just calm everybody down, you know, in, in that situation, you know, this, these happen in, in expeditions and you just have to keep your head and you have to make sure you don't throw any blame at anybody because 
there's always going to be factions. So you see, it doesn't matter why there was a problem. We have this problem now. Now we have to solve it. And this is the way it's going to go. We can't take everybody on. You know, we can't continue here. Uh, we do know that if we send half of the group back, that if they continue on the river that we were going down originally, there is that a wildlife outpost that they can get food. It's about a week's journey down there. So everybody's going to have to starve a little bit, but um, we're going to split the food down the middle. We're going to uh, give it to half of the people that I'm going to say that can't go on. The two scientists can't, we're not sending the river guy. I'm not sending, I'm bringing the two native guys. I'm bringing the, um, the other guy that funded the program. He was like a bull, this guy, really strong. And one of the cameramen, the Peruvian cameraman. Everybody else is going back. And some of them were really angry that they were going to go back. But to tell you the truth, many of them are very happy. You know, some had some injuries. The injuries got worse when we talked about who could go back. Some were really angry, but they said, you know, they were pissed off. And then they said, yeah, but it's, it's the best idea. You know, I mean, I think they were happy they were going back because now we saw the footprint. Now we're short of food. Now we don't even know if we can complete the expedition. But uh, we send them back. We wave them on their way. And, and by the way, up to this point, there was all kinds of wildlife. We saw taper on the, on the previous river. We saw capybara, the largest rats in the world, 100-pound rodents. We saw all kinds. of. We saw monkeys. We saw uh, uh, peccary, you know, wild boar. All of these, which would be animals that we could hunt to support ourselves when we're starving. But almost immediately from this point, in fact, the day before this meeting came on, uh, Friaki uh, came into the region. Friaki is, there are cold Patagonia winds that come up from Patagonia. And so now in the rainforest where it's nearly 100 degrees, and maybe 80% humidity, 70% humidity. Now it's 100% humidity, and it could be 40, 50, 60 degrees. It's freezing, and you're not prepared for that, and it's raining all the time. So as a result, from then on, through most of our expedition, this Friahi continued. As a result, the rivers become rapid because it's raining all the time. You can't fish. And then because it's so cold and raining, all the animals disappear. They burrow, they disappear, they, they hide until uh, the temperature comes back. And so any kind of hunting that we intended to do for a long period there was out of the picture. We continued. A couple of days after that, I determined where I thought would be a good place to leave the river and uh, head out over the mountains. It just turned out perfectly. I was just really, just purely lucky at that point. I mean, I could use the compass after getting out of the river, but I was really lucky that we probably hit the best place, the narrowest place to get over the mountain. And then once we got over the mountain, there was what turned out to be, there's a lot of streams, you know, especially when it's raining. You don't know what's a stream or what's not, you know, it's just a wet area up above. I mean, that you see at your feet and, and you can follow different rivulets. Some of them turn into streams. 
I was just perfectly lucky to pick one that turned into this little, you know, inches wide rivulet of water, then, then a foot, then a couple of feet, then it came into kind of a narrow canyon, and then uh, it turned into a stream, and that one took us all the way to the Heath River. It was amazing. Uh, it was, and I, I named that that river after that stream after my my wife. Okay, brought a friend until you know we learned the the uh, the native word for it. In fact, did I talk about the words, the naming of rivers yet? No, we get to the Heath, and the Heath is not the native word for it. Right. Yeah, the native word is the Sonani. In fact, that's also the name of the the village that I brought that the native elder from, which is at the very bottom of the Heath. It's Sonani Village. That is the native uh, name for the river. And it's funny, you know, uh, how we in the Western world and on all of our maps, they're all Western names for all of these geographical places that we claim to have the right to name. And in fact, the uh, Sonani River, the, the Heath River, was named by a guy, General Pondo. He was the ex-president of Bolivia. And he, when exploring after he was president up the Madre de Dios River, uh, saw the mouth of the Heath River, and he named it after a friend of his, who was a guy named Edwin Heath, who was an American explorer. Uh, But Pondo went up just a little ways up the river, not very far. Uh, He may have been shot at with arrows, I, I think if I remember correctly, but he didn't go very far. And, and uh, Edwin Heath, the na- the namesake of the river, he's never even seen the river. And so the names are so handy, so nanny from the, the tra- typical tropical people. There are so many names in our world that are, are like that. They have no relations to the people that lived there, or explored it, or knew it in their lifetime. Well, on that river, if I understand, there and the tribes or the people called the Essayaha? Essayaha, yeah. Essayaha. Now, there's the lower and then the upper tribes, are there not? Yeah. Well, we found that out later. I mean, in fact, I, I talked to the Dapis, it was the tribal name of the native uh, headman that I brought up, Eddie, Eddie Littlebird, we called it. And he... Um, told us that there was always these stories about the people from the villages on the lower the lower Sonani River, which is where Sonani, his village was. And there were a number of villages on the lower part of the Sonani. And then there were a number of villages on the upper Sonani. And he said there was always fighting between the two. And he knew that from his father and other people in the, the village that the Upper Sonani was this mysterious place that had people that were of his tribe, but different somehow. And it was, it was, this was a, kind of a magical, uh, surreal, or, or, or uh, a strange place that he had heard about since he was a child, but nobody knew had ever been up there. And that was one of the reasons why he wanted to come with us. And that's where you were headed. And that's where we were headed. So but, you make it down to the heath. You take that step out of the jungle and you finally see that river that you've been searching for. What were your feelings like? Well, at first, I wasn't sure that we were on the the heath. 
I was pretty sure. But then finally, we got some cleared sky, and I got the GPS to work, and I found indeed we were on the eighth. And it was just this elation, you know, that finally we made it here. But on the other hand, we're short of food now. We have less than half of our party. We've been through all these hardships, and now the real expedition is just starting, you know. So uh, it was elation and uh, excitement, but still, you know, there's some trepidation because we're in this situation. Now we had a little bigger problem, an- another problem. The cameraman that I brought, he wasn't in the greatest shape. He was a great guy, but he wasn't in the greatest shape, and he came on at kind of the last minute, and we needed a cameraman, and he was indispensable in the expedition, but he was at the end of his physical limit, and so he could not go on any, any, any further. So I decided we would make this our, our advanced base camp, And we set up our tents and we would leave our inflatable kayaks because we carried these with us all the time, all the way over. And by the way, I don't think I mentioned that when we split up the group, we realized we could no longer carry two loads anymore. We didn't have the food to do it. We didn't have the personnel to do it. So we sent back all the stuff that we absolutely didn't lead. We sent back the, uh, the radio, the shortwave radio. We sent back batteries, we sent back the generator, we sent back uh, books that people had wanted to read, anything like that, only the essentials we brought with us. So we finally got to the Heath River, we set up base camp, we knew that uh, advanced base, we knew that Carlos, the filmmaker, could not go on. So we had him train a couple of us how to use the camera, so we could get some kind of uh, footage, but we've just brought a little bit, a couple of batteries. We didn't know how long they would work. And then at this point, we got this bombshell from the other Indian, the the, uh, other native guy that we used as a trail cutter. It turns out, he said that a couple of years before, he had, some people from his village had gone up the Heath River, much, much lower, way down at the bottom of the river, but they had gone up the river on a hunting party and they had been attacked by natives, and one of them had been killed. Two of them had been shot by arrows, and one of them had been killed by, uh, by an arrow attack. And he said now he refused to go on. And why tell us this now? It was incredible. I don't know where this came from. But he said now he was, uh, after seeing the footprint, that he knew that the natives were here, and he said now we were all going to be killed unless we left immediately. He said he knew that they were out there right now. So um, uh, this threw another monkey wrench in the works. But we decided to leave him there with the cameraman and that three of us would continue. Myself, this the guy that funded the program, who was a bull of a, of a man, uh, really, uh, he was a short guy, but extremely strong. He was like a bodybuilder kind of a guy. And he'd been on another couple of trips with me before, and I kind of set him up for this trip to make sure that he was uh, he was prepared. And then the other, uh, Liddy, Eddie Littlebird, the uh, SEA uh, native, he would come with us. But before we went, the other native that was staying there said that he begged for us to leave one of our weapons. And we had two. We had the rifle and we had this small pistol, kind of a derringer that um, 
we ended up leaving with those two guys, and then we headed out. Okay, so we left them there with um, half of the food that we had, which was very little with their freeze-dried food at this time. Uh, we had tried to fish and we tried to hunt, but there's nothing to capture because uh, we're still getting rain every day. We're soaking wet all the time, freezing at night. We uh, then took off, just the three of us, just carrying as, as few things as we could. And I told them that we're going to go for about a week, for six days. We thought we had a chance of making it to the source. We didn't know, of course. Nobody had ever done it before. I'm just making an estimate with that's about as much food as we had to survive and get back, still emaciated, but to survive if we weren't able to, to uh, catch any food. So I said, if we're not back in those six days, you pack up, inflate one of the rafts, and you head down and try to get back to civilization and find some food. So uh, that was our limit. So we took off and uh, started, started up river. This is the end of part two. Return for our final episode as Bruce and the expedition fight their way up the Heath River in search for its source. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you can find more of my work as an adventure photographer and writer. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.